to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. So far in our study of Hebrews, we have tried to introduce ourselves to the epistle generally on the first night. And last week, we made a rather more detailed study of the first three verses of chapter 1. We went into that detail because it is really on the basis of these first three verses and what they tell us about our Lord Jesus Christ that the whole epistle is built. Its theme, as we have frequently said, is the surpassing glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in the whole universe as the great anchor for the lives of his people. And we looked last Wednesday at the sevenfold glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is depicted in these verses. He is the one first to whom everything will ultimately go. He is the heir of all things appointed by God. He is the one from whom all things have ultimately come because he is the creator of the world. He is the radiance of God's glory the exact image of his nature, the upholder of the universe, the one who has provided purification for our sins, and he is seated now at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now from verse 4 of chapter 1 right through to the end of chapter 2, the theme that the author takes up is the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to the angels. You notice that introduced in verse 4, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. Now, that theme is interrupted or punctuated at the beginning of chapter 2 for four verses by the first of the several warning passages in Hebrews. You will remember we saw that the epistle to the Hebrews is a word of exhortation as it's described. And in the midst of that exhortation, there is warning which the apostle brings to those who are in danger of drifting away from the faith or denying the gospel and so on, or refusing to grow up into Christ. And the first of these is in the first four verses of chapter 2. And then the theme is resumed at verse 5 of chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So right to the end of chapter 2, the theme is the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ to angels. Now, let me say right away that the concentration of this passage is not on angels, but on Christ. And that's a very important thing. The real profit of it lies, of course, in what it tells us of Jesus. And wherever you find in this, pas in this book that there is a comparison, Jesus superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to Aaron, superior to the old order of the priesthood, everywhere the great benefit and profit is in what it tells us of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what is being placarded before us. Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion which is uh, 
uh, bit of writing that I warmly commend to you. And uh, you ought to ask Jim Melvin that somehow or other he will get copies of that on the bookstall too. Um, there, there is no greater diet for people who are hungry to know God than Calvin's Institutes. And in the midst of the part of his writing on the creation, he says this, In reading the scriptures, we should constantly direct our inquiries and meditation to these things which tend to edification, not indulging in curiosity or in studying things of no value. Now, that's a great temptation, you know, when you're studying the Bible, perhaps especially when you come to a section like this, that you do not concentrate on the things which tend to edification, the things which tend to exalt Christ before our eyes and not to indulge in speculation and curiosity. Angelology, as they call it, is one sphere where it's possible to speculate a great deal Prophecy is another. And the main thrust of our study of Scripture should be in these areas which are designed for our edification. And we ought not to go off into tangents where we are speculating about things which Scripture is not itself laying before us uh, with emphasis and clarity. So we'll have a brief look uh, by... Calvin's judgment at the question which inevitably arises when we start studying this part of uh, Hebrews, why all this space devoted to angels? And what are we to think of angels anyway? I don't know whether you've ever met an angel, and uh, I don't suppose you know yourself, because the scripture tells us that we entertain them unawares. So you never really can tell. They are certainly part of God's creation, however, and they are different from the human creation and appear to be in Scripture pure spirits of a higher order than the human creation made by God and the angel creation was the sphere from which the devil himself fell and rebelled, having fallen from his first estate. But the whole angel creation appears to be a vast creation of God. What we may be sure of is that we shall meet them one day because God has told us that Jesus is coming in power and glory along with his angels, and we shall meet them then. They are interested in our worship, the Bible tells us, because we share in their worship. It is not that the angels share in ours, but we share in their worship, and our worship is really an anteroom, a foretaste, a preview of the worship which we shall perfectly render in heaven where the angels presently worship him. 
They are also interested in our evangelism because if even one sinner repents, they rejoice. So there is an interest that the angels have in our evangelism according to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Jews thought a great deal, obviously, about angels because they seemed to be between them and God as messengers, sometimes almost as intermediaries. Do you remember Isaiah in the temple, for example, in Isaiah 6, God is high and lifted up, and when he finds God's presence and holiness overwhelming him, the angelic creatures who are there have their faces covered, unable to look upon the glory of God. And it is one of the angelic creatures who goes to the altar and brings a coal from off the altar and puts it upon Isaiah's lips and touches it, touches his lips and tells him that they are cleansed. So there is this picture of the angel's ministry and it is from this that the Jews began to think of angels not only as messengers but in some form as intermediaries. Stephen tells us in Acts 7 that the law was given through angels and Paul confirms that in Galatians 3. Have you ever thought about this Important for us to know what the Bible teaches about angels, not to speculate ourselves about angels, but to know what the Bible tells us about them. And the Bible tells us that the law was given through angels. So says Paul in Galatians 3. In Jesus' life and ministry, I wonder if you've ever noticed that angels are peculiarly active at every strategic and significant turn in our Lord's ministry, they announce his conception to Joseph and again to Mary. They proclaim his birth to the shepherds in the fields. They attended him after the temptation. And you'll remember how when our Lord was tempted, the devil left him and an angel came and ministered to him. It does seem that there is a significance in this angel messenger coming to tend and minister to the Son of God. They appeared strengthening him in Gethsemane. Do you remember also the angels came and strengthened him? And when Peter began to use fleshly means to deal with the opposition that they were experiencing, Jesus holds up his hand and says to him, and this is immediately after Gethsemane, do you not know that I could call upon 12 legions of angels, not just one, but 12 legions of them? It seems as though these angel messengers are, as it were, hovering in the wings, and all our Savior had to do was call upon them. But he speaks of them as being in some sense, God's messengers to serve and succor him. They are active again at his resurrection, both 
in the rolling away of the stone and in announcing it. They are present at his ascension and they predict his return. Do you remember this same Jesus whom you have seen go into heaven will so come in like manner, they say. The angels appear regularly and we need to take that seriously, I think, in our Lord's ministry. And we are told finally that they will accompany him when he reappears. But it does seem that some sections of the early church were misled and confused about angels. Colossians 2.18, for example, even speaks of people who were so far led away as to worship them. Let no one disqualify you, says Paul writing to the Colossians, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels. Now this is obviously a particular kind of distortion of the truth and of the law of God in what he describes as self-abasement, not what we would normally think of as self-humbling, but worship of angels is what's important, taking a stand on visions and so on. Well now, it is clear that there was this danger. The likelihood seems to be that there were teachings about angels which had come to the church to whom the apostle to the Hebrews is writing. These Hebrew Christians had come under the influence. I think it is feasible and reasonable and probably most likely from a sect or group. And since we have found that there's more than one indication that the Dead Sea area from which the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and where there were groups called the Essenes, some of these groups appear to have taught certain of the things that may well have diverted these Hebrew Christians away from Christ. Now that's the main thing. Whatever had come from this influence, it was diverting them from the solitary, unique glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is always the great test. This is what this particular influence had done, and they had become susceptible to this influence. Now, the apostle is jealous for the supreme glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and whatever in any sense detracts from that, and from there being taken up with that is evil, and he wants to correct it. And so he turns his theme uh, to the relation of angels to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are two things that I want to emphasize in the apostles' concern, first of all. The first is that he has this deep pastoral concern for the lives of these Hebrew Christians he cares for in Christ. And whatever may detract from the solitary glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives immediately draws out a pastoral concern, because this is fundamentally a pastoral letter. And beloved, we ought to be like that towards each other. Our care and love and concern for each other should not be that of busybodies in each other's lives, but the care and concern of a pastor. And we are to be pastors to one another in this sense. 
so that whenever we see anything that comes to influence the life of a brother or sister so that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is somehow going to be occluded in their life, whatever that influence, we need to care for them, pray for them, and exercise this kind of pastoral concern for one another. But the other thing that strikes me is the way that he deals with it. Do you notice that fundamentally the way the apostle is dealing with this is by scriptural teaching? What he is doing is taking up the scripture, and you will notice that throughout the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he is taking various passages from the Old Testament scripture and expounding them to them. And so often, you see, the disorders in our lives or in our thinking, this susceptibility even to be drawn away, and it's a very significant thing when you get some of these stresses or some of these groups which probably were pressing upon the lives of these Hebrew Christians. It's interesting to see who are susceptible to them. And so often the answer to it is an undergirding of life with the word of God in all its fullness. So that they are stable steadfast, persevering. These are words that the apostle to the Hebrews uses again and again, persevering, enduring to the end. And here there is an example of the fact that the Old Testament has direct relevance in this connection and a decisive authority for Christian believers. For what he is doing clearly here is he is proving his point. He is counseling and guiding and pastoring them by taking the Old Testament scripture and he quotes it to them and there is no question about it. It is not only decisively authoritative for them in all its parts so that wherever he turns to in the Old Testament, that is it. God has spoken, you see. That's the point of the beginning. God has spoken in this word. And so that's decisive. And that, beloved, is decisive for us in every sphere of life. And if we haven't got that settled, we have opened our lives to all kinds of drifting and all kinds of spiritual danger and all forms of spiritual disease. That the word of God is utterly authoritative. And here, the Old Testament. And that's very significant too. I think that it may be that one of the reasons for many kinds of spiritual weakness and lameness in so many situations that we see is due to a neglect of the Old Testament. Some of us have not been fed on a thorough biblical diet. And it's all very well for us to say, you know, I'm a New Testament Christian, people will say. Well, my dear friend, if you are a New Testament Christian only, you're only half a Christian. The kind of Christian that matters is a biblical Christian 
who is rooted and grounded in the whole depth and breadth and wonder of the word of God. And that's of enormous importance. And if we don't see the relevance of it, then that is understandable in many ways. It's often not easy for us to understand. But the challenge of that is to be patient and diligent and to search the scriptures because, says Jesus, these are they that speak of me. Now, that's what we're going to find in these verses this evening. Jesus, when he found these men who were discouraged and disheartened, what did he do to them on the Emmaus Road? He opened to them all the scriptures, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he began to show them the things concerning himself. It was Jesus in the scriptures that he was teaching them. Beginning at Moses. Beginning at Moses. Now, look then with me at the scripture teaching the writer gives us in the rest of chapter 1. There is now, from verse 5 to the end of chapter 1, a sequence of seven references to various Old Testament scriptures. Six of them from the Psalms and the other from the second book of Samuel. And what the writer of the epistle is doing, having laid the foundation in the supreme glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, turns now to this issue, which clearly was a relevant issue here to these Hebrew Christians, of the relation of this supremely glorious Savior to the angels and their wrong attitude to them. It seems that some of them were thinking of angels in terms of intermediaries to whom they prayed. That may be a possibility, and there are fragments of suggestions here and there that that may be part of the problem. And there are still uh, areas of the Christian church where people have this, this tendency and peculiarity of praying either to angels or through angels or something of the kind. It seems some were worshipping angels and hadn't grasped that they were detracting from the glory, the solitary glory of the Lord Jesus. Now in the first place then, in chapter 1 at verse 5, he turns to the quotation from Psalm 2. For to what angel, verse 5, did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm and is quoted more than once in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 4, you remember when the apostles are imprisoned and then released but commanded no more to speak in the name of Jesus. In the midst of their prayer, they cite Psalm 2. And that psalm is a psalm which does speak to us clearly of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what here he is particularly pointing out is that there is only one Son of God in the sense of which he has been speaking in verse 2. To what angel did God ever say, Thou art my Son? Today I have begotten thee. Christ, you see, is the eternal Son of God. There never was a time 
In other words, when the father could not say of him and to him, Thou art my son. But he has been in a special sense begotten as the son of God. Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Now the point of, of the quotation is this that there were, as it were, three areas in which the Jew thought first of men and that form of creation, then of the angelic creation, which was higher than the human creation, and finally of God himself. Now, the significant thing is that Jesus is described in a way that the angels are never described. He is going to go on to say to us in verse 7 that the angels are servants. Jesus is the Son. And God has never so described angels. So you see, he is exalting the Lord Jesus Christ above both men and angels. God has never said to an angel, Thou art my Son. Today, I have begotten thee. Now, this begetting of the Son of God raises questions. When was Jesus begotten by the Father? Well, the natural answer would be at his birth. He was begotten as the God-man, begotten, not created, we say, begotten by God, not by man, and it is to that truth that the virgin birth bears witness that Jesus was begotten, not by man nor by the will of men, but by God. And there is some truth in this, but it seems much more likely, let me ask you to think about this, and this passage does require us to do a little bit of extra thinking, perhaps. It seems much more likely that the day may be not the day of Jesus' birth, but of his resurrection. If you have your Bible near to Acts 13 and can look it up conveniently, you will notice that in Acts 13, uh, Paul is preaching and again quoting this very psalm. And he says... Uh, preaching on the resurrection at verse 30 of Acts 13, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now, I think that what he is speaking about there is this day which establishes forever our Lord Jesus' superiority to all other beings, because you know that so often when the New Testament speaks of the resurrection, it includes the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. And here is the day when God the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the grave 
and he appeared unto many and then was exalted to the right hand of God on high. And that is when he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So when was our Lord Jesus begotten as the only begotten of the Father? In this sense, it was when he was resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God. And you see the point of this for his argument that there is none now higher than our Lord Jesus Christ. He occupies heaven's highest place. The highest place that heaven affords is his and his by right. And God the Father has exalted his Son to this place. And the resurrection is what declares him to be the Son of God with that kind of power and authority. So there is his first use of the Old Testament of Psalm 2 to declare that Jesus, surpassing all other created beings, is the Son of God. Thou art my Son. To no angel has God said this. He is the eternal Son of God, who was in the beginning with God, who created the heavens and the earth. But he was the only begotten Son of God, declared to be so by the resurrection and exaltation which God the Father gave to him. So there is this first argument. The second quotation is from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14, where he introduces it in verse 5 also with the phrase, or again. And that is the place where God promises to be a father to the son whom David would have and who would succeed him, that of course is Solomon. But that promise, as you know, did not reach its fulfillment in Solomon's time and in Solomon's life and in Solomon's reign. God is promising in that part of Second Samuel, and we obviously don't have time to look up all these areas of the scripture individually this evening, but God is promising to be a father to the son David would have on the throne. And yet, in Solomon's time, there was decay. There was a national decay. And Solomon, before the end of his days, became a shame on the name of Israel. And the whole of Israel's life began to do a downward slide towards the end of Solomon's reign and reached its nadir when Elijah came on the scene in the reign of Ahab, you will remember. But the significant thing is this, that the hope of Israel, that this promise would be fulfilled, did not die. Prophets confidently looked for one who would rule from the throne of David. In other words, they heard this promise from God that he would be a father to David's son. And the prophets looked for this, that out of the root and stem of David, there would come one who would sit on the throne of David, you see. Now, it's of great significance that when... Zacharias, wasn't it, is praying. He says this of Jesus, of the Messiah. He shall be great, 
and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now there's a very significant thing, is it not? To whom is God saying this? To whom has God been pointing all down the years of prophecy? Here is the significance of the Old Testament, you see, of the raising up of kings, of the changing fortune of nations, of the failure of one man, and God turning to another branch of that family. The significance of it all is that he is bringing history to its climax in Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants these Hebrews to grasp. It is the Lord Jesus who sat on the throne of his father David and who sits on the fulfillment of that throne in heaven now. It is no other, he says, do you see? Now whatever detracts from that in your thinking is so clearly detracting from Jesus' solitary glory. But this is what the significance of God's promises in 2 Samuel. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It is Jesus of whom he speaks. Then he goes on to Psalm 97 and verse 7, and you will notice if you are of a revised standard version that there is a suggestion that it may also be linked with Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 43 in the Greek version, where you see in the margin LXX, that stands for the Greek version of the Old Testament, which, as you know, is written in Hebrew. But this is a suggestion that there may be a reference to that particular verse in Deuteronomy 32. Now, verse 6 can be translated either as it is in the RSV, if you look at it, if you have the RSV, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. That would make it uh, refer to the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it can be translated, and scholars who know better than you and I about these things suggest that it might better be translated this way, with the again relating to the bringing the firstborn into the world. And when he brings the firstborn into the world again, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And that would make it refer to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that probably is how it ought to be translated and understood. Psalm 97 certainly gives us clear suggestion of a reference to Christ's return in glory. If you know Psalm 97, let me uh, remind you of uh, some parts of it. Where um, God speaks of his reign, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples behold his glory. All worshippers of image are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. All gods bow down before him. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of thy judgments, O Lord. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Light dawns for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. 
And this would well fit the whole context of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is here described then as the one who is the firstborn of God. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And whether it is the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ that he refers to, it doesn't really make so much difference. The point is that the angels of God at the advent of Jesus are called upon to worship. And this declares our Lord Jesus' superiority. When God leads his firstborn again into the world and his glory is revealed, then the angels of God will bow down and worship him. One old commentator says, with reference to this description of Jesus as the firstborn, you know that he is described as the firstborn here and the only begotten son of the Father is how we often speak of him. He says, when we refer to this division, to this description, where he has no brothers in the sense of his eternal belonging to the Father, he is the only begotten. With reference to his humanity, when he is qualified to have brothers, he is the first begotten of many brethren. With reference to his divinity, he is the only begotten Son of God. With reference to his humanity, he is the first begotten of many brethren. Now, the fourth and fifth quotations are both quotations from the Psalms, one from Psalm 104 in verse 7, and the other from Psalm 45 in verse 8 and 9. In Psalm 104, the reference is particularly to angels. There is a reference to angels as servants. And here is the status of angels clarified now, servants whom God sometimes clothes with power to fulfill his purpose. I think that's what wind and fire refer to. I wonder if you do. Who makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire, or in some versions his angels spirits, but the reference is that God seems to clothe his angels with the power of which wind and fire speak in order to fulfill his purpose. But the key thought is that they are servants of God. He summons them. He sends them. They are there to do his purpose. But the Son is in a different category altogether. Now look at the category into which the Son comes in verse 8. And here again there is this pressing jealousy for the unique glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of the angels, he says this, they are his servants, sent forth clothed with power. But of the Son, he says this in verse 8, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And he quotes now from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. 
were in another realm altogether from the angels, Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe, given a scepter, the symbol of authority and rule and of sovereignty. Thy, the, the righteous scepter is the scepter of thy kingdom. And he has also the integrity to rule in perfection. His rule is universal. It is a scepter of righteousness which God has given to him. And it is a universal reign that our Lord Jesus enjoys. It is a reign of perfection because he reigns with integrity. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Now there's an interesting thing just in the bygoing and we don't have time to stop at it. It's an interesting thing that when our Lord Jesus' integrity and character is being described, it's described both in a positive and a negative form. He is one who loves righteousness. But he is also one who hates iniquity or lawlessness. Now you cannot have the one without the other, beloved. We need to learn this. That in the kind of character that increasingly is becoming like the Lord Jesus, there is a love of righteousness. And there is a hatred of iniquity. The man who wrote, I hate the sins that made thee mourn, is speaking of this very thing in himself. And this is something that growth in grace produces, a new love for righteousness, a new horror and hatred of iniquity. He also has the anointing of God. None other has this, but Jesus has it, says the writer to the Hebrews in verse 9. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness beyond thy comrades. He is, in other words, not only the sovereign, he is the Christ, for that's what the word means. It means the anointed one. He has been Christed when he was anointed by the Father. And this has put him in a totally unique category. He is sovereign, a sovereign who is universal in his reign and perfect in his government. He is the anointed of God upon whom the smile of God has descended and the outpouring of God's anointing has come. And that may refer to his anointing after his baptism, or it may refer, as many think, to his anointing when he is exalted into the place of glory and crowned in the glory of God at his coronation, in other words. Now, it may be that too, who is to say. But it is this Jesus that he sets before us. Now, let me just point you to the practical significance of all this. Here are these beleaguered disciples, you see, who are under pressure of many different kinds, who are beginning to become fearful, who have been persecuted, who have known all kinds of tension and testing, 
and they have begun to drift and they have this sense of great helplessness and feel they cannot persevere any longer. Now what is the great anchor that he gives to their souls? It is this glorious doctrine of the sovereignty of the Savior to whom God has said, Thy throne, O God, do you see how his sovereignty and his deity are being emphasized? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. It is not only a universal throne. It is not only a throne from which he exercises perfect sovereignty. It is an everlasting throne. Thrones and kingdoms of the world may crumble and tumble, but the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ will last forever. He will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now that's the kind of backbone that these people were needing. And beloved, you see, it is this kind of doctrine that puts backbone into believers and God knows how much we need that in the modern world in which we live. Who is to know how much more we may need it in generations that are to come? Who is to say before the end of the century what we may be facing in the modern world and how much we will be needing this kind of solidity and stability and security that comes from the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ in its manifold perfections. And he is saying to them, when you're diverted from that, my dear children, you are diverted from the very anchor to your souls. And if you're starving yourself from, of this truth, you're starving yourself of the very basic diet that you need. How important. How important it is. The sixth of these references is in Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, and is in verse 10 of, um, of the first chapter. That psalm speaks of God intervening on behalf of his people, you will know. And in it, the psalmist takes up these words, Thou, Lord, didst found the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. They will all grow old like a garment, like a mantle. Thou wilt roll them up, and they will be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years never end. Now do you see again the emphasis upon this glorious picture of our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, I so often think that one of the most vital questions to ask ourselves is, what concept have you of Jesus? What concept have you of Jesus? What kind of Savior is this that you have come to know? Have you come to know him in all his fullness and glory? You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-8255. 
1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.